Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good word uh, that you have given us about our Lord Jesus. We thank you that here we hear him speak of life and how he gives it to us. Our Father, we pray that we would receive this word as the word of the living God and you would help us understand it and in your great mercy we would believe for life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A conversation that can change your life. A conversation that can give you life, new life. And Nicodemus had that kind of conversation, a conversation in which he got more than he bargained for in this memorable nighttime conversation with Jesus. In response to a friendly reaching out, he got a blunt and puzzling rejoinder. Where he thought he was conversing with a fellow teacher, he met someone who said he could give him eternal life. Now Nicodemus needed that blunt response of verse 3 because Nicodemus was shooting far too low in his estimate of Jesus and needed to be shocked out of it. His opening, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, sounds generous from such a respected teacher as Nicodemus was, a serious religious man, a member of the Jewish elite, the ruling council. He calls Jesus teacher. In his generosity, Nicodemus is including him and Jesus, an unlearned carpenter, in the same category of people as himself, someone whom Jesus later calls the teacher of Israel. But this compliment is in reality so far from the truth of Jesus' greatness that it is an expression of unbelief, not faith. Just as today reckoning Jesus to be a teacher and only a teacher, whether that's of morality or spirituality, is still an expression of unbelief. Jesus will not allow himself to be contained in that category. His work restricted to just bringing new understandings of revelation already given, more instruction about how to live. See, Jesus has already demonstrated that he is the one who can bring the abundance of the new creation, change water into wine. He's already said he is the new temple, the one in whom people will be able to draw near to God, to live at peace with God in God's presence. He's already shown he is characterised by the zeal of God's true king. And so Jesus now redirects this conversation abruptly to help Nicodemus see what he is really on about, the true significance of his ministry. Verse 3, Truly, truly, says Jesus to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, not being first century Jews, the significance of the kingdom of God and the emotional weight of that phrase can be missed by us. But Nicodemus understood both, as we see from his disappointed reaction. See, kingdom of God is a phrase that doesn't refer to a geographical place like the United Kingdom. No, it speaks of the reign of God, the time of God's rule over all the earth. And it's not just speaking of God's providential rule over all things going on all the time, making the sun rise, guiding the affairs of the nations. Kingdom of God had become a term that 
brought together what the Jews expected God to do at the end, do on earth when he came in power to rule and fulfilled in history all the promises he had made to them in the prophets. Let's just look at one example of those promises. The promises contained in the book of Ezekiel because Jesus is actually going to refer to Ezekiel a little later in this conversation. If you were reading the prophet Ezekiel from chapter 34 on, you'd see lots of promises. You would see that God promised that he himself would come and say, be the shepherd of his people. Oh, and he would at that time establish David's descendant as ruler in Israel. Chapter 35, you'd see God promise to execute judgment on Israel's enemies who gloated over her humiliation. Going on in chapter 36, you'll see that he promises to restore the land. This land that was desolate has become, they will say, like the Garden of Eden. Chapter 37, Ezekiel speaks of God raising the dead. Oh, and says that God will bring an everlasting covenant of peace and dwell amongst his people. In the later chapters of Ezekiel, you'll see God promising to restore the temple and make it the place of his presence and the source of life and fruitfulness for the world. Oh, and yes, as we'll see in chapter 36, that God promised at that time he would give his people new hearts and give them his spirit. Now, Ezekiel is just one of the prophets. There are more promises in Isaiah, Daniel, Jeremiah, the other prophets. And so if you were a Jew, a believing Jew, you had a lot to look forward to. And the kingdom of God, the reign of God, was the phrase that described this time when God, through his own coming, would bring all this to pass on earth. Think how that reign would have been longed for by faithful Jews as they continued in Jesus' time to be oppressed by Roman rule, continued to suffer from triumphant idolaters, continued to know grief and death. But more, think how this reign of God is something that you also would desire to share in if you could. To have no death, no fear of death. To live at peace with God and each other, secure in an environment that was always fruitful and safe. To have a leader that you could trust, act wisely, justly, righteously, to know the living God, the source of all life and good. Now Nicodemus thinks that Jesus saying he must be born again is making a statement about the timing of the coming of this reign on earth that would come in a lifetime of those born later, the next generation, a timing that would exclude Nicodemus from sharing in that time. For someone like Nicodemus longing for this kingdom, Jesus' words are actually an emotional kick in the guts. It would be like having terminal cancer, having been told you've got months to live, and the doctor coming in and saying, there's a cure coming. It'll just be 25 years. See, this was a pronouncement, you must be born again, that gave Nicodemus no hope. And so he challenges what Jesus has said, Jesus demanding of him what is clearly impossible as the condition of sharing in that wonderful reign. 
How can a man be born when he's old? Verse 4. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus doesn't back down. He just makes it clear that Nicodemus has misunderstood the kind of new birth Jesus says is necessary if one is to share in that wonderful kingdom. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You see, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, I'm not just speaking of having more of this life, being born again, having a rerun of what you have now. No, I'm speaking of being born from above, from God. Jesus is speaking of a new kind of life from a different source than the life of the flesh of this age, the life that you receive from your physical parents. And in saying you must be born of water and the Spirit, Jesus is just bringing out the significance of what God has already said in Ezekiel 36 about what must happen before sinful Israel. That's right, an Israel that had worshipped other gods, broken God's commandments, lived ignoring and rejecting their God and was suffering under God's judgment. Jesus is just bringing out what God has already said in Ezekiel 36 has to happen before sinful Israel can share in the kingdom, live at peace with God in his presence. In Ezekiel 36, as you heard read, God had said, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Then... Then you shall dwell in the land and I will be your God and you my people. God is saying that before they can enjoy his reign, there was cleansing needed. Verse 25, water, the sprinkled water that would purify. This is a picture of forgiveness. The Israelites must have the offence of their sin, their idolatry. They're giving their trust and loyalty to created things and not to their creator removed so that the Spirit of God could come and dwell in them. And the Spirit must come, for there is new life needed if they are to continue as God's people, doing his will, living in his presence. You see, God says, verse 26, that the Israelites needed a heart transplant. They had to get rid of the heart of stone, the dead heart, that was not responding to God's word, the stubborn will that refused to do God's will. That had to be replaced with a new heart, a living heart that can respond to God, that will beat in time with God's commands because it is alive with the life of the Spirit of God, the new spirit God would give. Now, if Israel who had the commands, who had uh, this history of relationship with God, needed this new cleansing and new heart to be able to be God's people, then so do we all, every one of us. Because 
Like Israel, we've been idolaters. We've all given our loyalty and trust to created things, our idols, and not to our creator. You see, every time we choose to do what God forbids, we're saying that we trust ourselves more than God, that we know better than God, that we really should be the ones in charge and not God. That is, we are idolaters. Where we put our confidence in our money or our intellect or science or some other god, we are worshipping idols. And as idols, we are unclean, not fit. As idolaters, we are unclean, not fit for God's presence. And God gives us up in judgment to our follies. We all need that cleansing and new life from the Spirit. We need to be born again of water and the Spirit if we are to share in that wonderful reign of God. And Jesus says there is only one source of this new life, the Spirit of God. That which is born of the flesh, verse 6, is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. This life of relationship with God where we love him and want to do his will can never arise from the life of this age, the flesh, the life we inherit from Adam. And so this life is, is not something you can inherit from your parents. No, it has to come from the Spirit. So Nicodemus, who knew the scriptures, shouldn't be surprised at Jesus saying he needs another birth, where life comes from this new source, from the Spirit. In fact, Jesus gives a picture from nature about how this new life comes. It was a natural picture because the word for spirit in Greek and Hebrew is the same as the word for wind. He says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Though the Spirit can't be seen, says Jesus, you experience it in its effects, just like the wind. The new life the Spirit gives is real now. But it is the gift of God, subject to his direction, not under our control, not something we can direct. And so Nicodemus says, how can these things be? You see, Jesus, if you can't direct the spirit, how am I meant to get this new birth that you say I need to enter the kingdom of God? He's saying to Jesus, how has this answer brought me any closer to a hope of sharing in this time I long for? Haven't you just made it more distant, more impossible to attain by saying, I must be born of water and the Spirit? Well, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? He said, You should have already got this from Ezekiel, this necessity of cleansing a new heart, a new spirit. And if you don't believe me when I teach you the scriptures, you already have earthly things. How will you believe when I tell you new things, things revealed from heaven? You ought to believe, says Jesus, because when I tell you those things, I am speaking with authority, a unique authority 
an authority that is real even if, even if not accepted. Why? Because Jesus says he is the one who comes down from heaven. He is the son of man who can come down from heaven and speak of the truth of heaven. And having assured Nicodemus of his authority, Jesus actually then goes on to answer Nicodemus's question. How can these things be? And he answers that question in verses 14 to 16. Here he tells him, how, and he tells us how this new birth of the Spirit will be possible. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now at this point Nicodemus's head is probably hurting. No, it's just too much. But actually, using an Old Testament picture, Jesus is about to give Nicodemus a whole lot more to get his mind around. See, in verses 14 to 15, Jesus is saying that this new birth, the cleansing and the coming of the Spirit, will come about by his death. He speaks here of eternal life coming through faith in him crucified. Eternal life, that's not just more of the same of this life, a never-ending this life. Eternal life is the life of the age to come. It's the life of the new heaven and earth, the life of God's people in the kingdom of God, the life the Spirit gives that starts with the Spirit-given new birth now and goes on forever. It's a different kind of life. This life says Jesus in verses 14 to 15, will be given to everyone who believes that Jesus' death is God's provision to deal with their sin. Nicodemus knew his Bible. And in just a few words, speaking of Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus is referring him to the incident recorded in Numbers 21. There it says that the children of Israel, as they're wandering around in the wilderness, they travel from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient. On the way they spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look, can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole where then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. How did rebellious Israel find forgiveness and life, escape God's just judgment on their faithlessness, seen in their grumbling and ingratitude? Well, it was by showing their trust in God's provision, showing their trust by looking at the bronze serpent. When they did that, they would live. That's right, verse 8. It was look and live. 
that simple, just faith in God's provision for pardon and life. No work, no act of penance, no sacrifice they made, nothing that could be seen to earn that forgiveness. Just look and live. And Jesus says that he, lifted up on the cross, is God's provision to spare us death in judgment and to give us life, the life of the age to come. That's right, being lifted up is Jesus' way of speaking of his death. Before his death, in John 12, he said, Now's the time for the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So let that sink in. Jesus is saying, you can live forever through faith in Jesus crucified as God's provision to deal with your sin, God's provision for forgiveness and life. It is look and live. Oh, you must be born again, but that is God's work. What God calls you to do, calls you to do tonight, is to put your trust in his son Jesus and eternal life is yours, that rich and glorious life in the kingdom of God. In a sense, you don't need to know how it works, just like they didn't need to know how that bronze serpent worked. What God is calling you to do is not, well, you know, examine him for explanations, but to trust his promise. But how can it be like that for sinful people, for sinful people like us who deserve to die for our sin? That's right. We share the same thanklessness, the same pride that says God's accountable to us, the same dismissal of his word of promise or warning. And I expect you're conscious of other ways in which you have disobeyed, in which you have sinned against the living God. How can it be that it is for us, look and live. Look at the beloved Son, the eternal word, hang on the cross for our sin and live. How can that be? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus says it is look and live because of God's love for the world. There's no other explanation he gives. Love. Love which is free and undeserved and for the undeserving. And to start to get a sense of the wonder of that, let's think of the world and then think of the gift of the Son. See, in John, the world is not another way of speaking of the human race or the elect. The world describes humanity in a relation of rebellion to God, human society that follows the lies of the devil, that seeks to keep God out of its life. Jesus will speak later of the world not knowing God and of hating him. God's love for the world is wonderful, not because of the quantity of people it embraces, but the quality of the world's relationship with God. 
world is not describing a number of people but a kind of people. This love for the world is love for rebels, for sinners, for people who have no time for God and really don't want him in their lives, for people who we will see in this gospel will carry through their rejection of God in killing his beloved son. That's whom God says he loves in sending his son into the world. And that's an even greater wonder, isn't it? For love of this world, for sinners, God gives his unique son, his beloved son Jesus, who is with him in glory from the foundation of the world to endure the pain, the shame and humiliation of death on the cross. To give those who would believe in him life. Now from time to time I've heard preachers try to bring home the reality of the greatness of love by all kinds of illustrations. But I actually can't do it. I cannot illustrate this because for me it is unthinkable. It is just unthinkable that I would ever give any of my children for anyone else, let alone somebody who hates me. I can't imagine it. But God gives his beloved son for people who treat him with contempt. Think of that. For you to know that you're included in this love, this immense love, this unfathomable love that sent the Son to die to give you life. For you to know that you're included in this love, you just need to know, you just have to be able to confess what is true, that you are part of the world that you have shared in that rebellion against God that would rather do things your way than his, that you have shared in that ingratitude to God that uses what he's given you without acknowledging him, that you believe the devil's lies, that you are somehow equal to God and that God's accountable to you and that God won't keep his word of promise or his warning of judgment. If you can confess that, well, in God declaring his love for the world, there is an invitation for you to come and trust his son, whatever your background, whatever your sin, because God is saying that in love he has sent his son to give you life. It's wonderful, isn't it? But it's also confronting because it's so different from us. This seems so open, so free so undeserved. But that's the way it is. Look and live. Look to the Son and live for all who know they are sinners. Now this declaration that there was life for all kinds of people who shared in rebellion against God was also confronting for Nicodemus. Actually it would have been confronting for most of the Jews of the time and really challenged their expectation of the end. See, for most of the Jews at the time thought that God's king would come and, yes, save the elect Jews and punish the world, condemn the idolaters. And because it's so confronting, 
Jesus makes God's purpose very clear. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. God's purpose and its outcome is very clear. God's purpose in the Son's coming is to save the world through him. You should never doubt that. Never doubt that when you're seeking the salvation of others in your prayers, in sharing the gospel with them in your conversation, in helping them overcome obstacles to believing, never doubt that you are acting in line with God's purpose for Jesus' coming. He has come to save. That's why he was sent into the world. And the outcome of God sending the Son into the world to save? Well, it's that those who believe in him, believe that his death lifted up on the cross is for their sin, believe that his rising lifted up to God's right hand is to give them life. It's that those who believe will have life, will not be condemned at the judgment, for God gives us an effective saviour. Not condemned. Think how wonderful it would be if you could go home tonight knowing this, if you have never known it before. If conscious of God and conscious of the reality of judgment, fearful of that because you know how you've lived, think how wonderful it would be if you would go home tonight knowing that you will not be condemned but given life, to go home without fear, to go home with a confident hope, to go home with peace with God. Well, that's what Jesus promises you if you will trust him in his death. Those who believe are not condemned. They'll live. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God, condemned already, because they've turned their back on the only provision that can spare them from the judgment that their rebellion against God already deserves. That's right, people aren't condemned just because they don't believe the gospel. People are condemned already for their sin. And they continue in that condemnation if they will not believe the gospel. Those who do not believe are condemned already because they've refused to accept Jesus' revelation of himself as the unique son sent into the world to save and there is nowhere else to turn for this new life, no other provision God has made for their sin they are condemned already in not believing. The Son lifted up on the cross such an extraordinary gift from a generous God who wants people to be saved, who wants you to be saved. What would stop people believing? What might stop you believing? And this is the judgment. 
The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. If you are not believing, God's word says don't blame God. The world does not believe, people don't believe because they love their sin more. That's right, they don't want their rebellion against God to be seen for what it is. They're afraid of the shame, afraid of having to admit that they're not the good people they want to think themselves to be. Oh, they're afraid of having to admit that when they did that cruel or unkind or selfish thing, they really could and should have acted otherwise. Oh, they're afraid that their thanklessness to God will be seen as what it is, base, without reason or cause. Oh, they don't want, for example, their affair to be seen as shameful lust. They want it dressed up as love. They don't want their walking out to be seen as abandonment and betrayal. But as our world calls it, you know, a noble seeking of their full potential. They don't want the humbling of saying God knew better and they should have listened to him. They don't want to have to admit. They don't want to have to admit that their defiance is just the proud folly of creatures who, though dust, think they know better than the eternal, almighty, living God. People don't believe because they love darkness rather than light. So if you're not believing in Jesus, think, what sin is holding you back? What are you loving more than the life Jesus gives? Or perhaps what are you fearing will be exposed if you come to Jesus? No, Jesus knows that already about you as he makes you this promise. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And that's this phrase, doing what is true. It's speaking about living by the truth of Jesus, doing faithfulness to Jesus. Those who live by the truth, well, they love the light and they come to the light so that the glory for what has been done in and by them, by God, and his grace by the power of the new life he gives is given to God. This conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus is extraordinary, isn't it? You know, I reckon Nicodemus's head would have been full at the end of it. Perhaps your head is too. So many ideas swirling around that he would have had to have gone over it again and again. An extraordinary conversation to be remembered all his life. Actually, I hope that will be true of you as well, that you'll go over and over this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus and remember it all your life, for this conversation gives life. That's true, isn't it? When Nicodemus thought hope was being taken away, Jesus gave him hope. Hope in God, not in himself. That's what Jesus gives us here. Hope in God, not in ourselves. 
hope for a share in the life to come. Hoping God's generous love in the provision of his son lifted up on the cross to give life and spare from judgment all who will believe in him. Go over this conversation in your head and don't underestimate Jesus anymore. (laughs) Don't underestimate what he's come to bring. He's not just a teacher but a saviour and the saviour of the world. Oh, and, and don't doubt the Father's love. It's generosity or graciousness. If you are having a problem with God, actually he's probably going to be with you. Don't doubt his love. This is the love that gives his son for rebels. And don't ignore the Father's purpose. He sent Jesus into the world not to condemn it, but to save it. And so don't bring judgment upon yourself by loving your sin, your shame, more where God is offering you life by trusting in his son. And don't blame God for your unbelief. Work out what you love more and turn away from it to put your faith in Jesus, the unique son sent into the world, given to the world, to save by his death and rising. Go over this conversation in your head. These words give life. And if you say you know God's love, if you're a believer and you know that the Son lifted up on the cross has brought you forgiveness and the new birth of the Spirit has brought you eternal life, well then, share what you have come to know. God sent the Son to save not to condemn, to save a world already justly under judgment. And God saves by people believing this gospel about Jesus, the gospel Jesus preached first to Nicodemus, that his death is the provision of God to give us life. So get in line with God's purpose and point your neighbours and friends to the Saviour on the cross so they can look and live. Go back to the wilderness with the Israelites. It would have been a pretty miserable Israelite, wouldn't it? Who There he was, bitten by the snake, the poison coursing around through his veins, dying. And then heard the word that God had given to Moses and looked at the snake and found himself alive. Whole well, it would have been a pretty miserable Israelite who did that and then kept that to himself, where all around him people were dying. You'd expect that healed, that restored sinner to say, it works, it works, listen to the word God gave Moses, look and live. Well, it would be a miserable Christian, wouldn't it? Who having trusted the Son, the Lord Jesus crucified and risen and being spared judgment, being given the new birth of the Spirit, come to know for themselves God's love. It would be a miserable Christian who then kept that to themselves when God sent his Son to save the world. A miserable Christian who didn't say to his friends and neighbours, listen to the word God spoke through Jesus 
He saves by his death and rising. Look and live. Brothers and sisters, trust Jesus. Know that new life. And let's make sure we encourage each other not to be those miserable Christians. Let's be people whose hearts beat with our Saviour, who came and gave himself to death, not just for you, but for the world. Tell them. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that we would first of all hear this word as your word. And see here your promise to us of new life, of a share in your kingdom, of eternal life, through trusting your Son, crucified for our sin and risen, given by you in love to give us life. Help each one of us to know that to be true for ourselves to know that the Son come down from heaven speaks the truth of God. We thank you that unlike Nicodemus, we stand on the other side of the cross and the resurrection and we know that you have vindicated the words spoken by Jesus and in raising him you have said everything he has said is true and he is the one who can give that life-giving spirit we thank you that he is indeed the saviour and the only saviour of the world. Help us to trust that and to know for ourselves that life. And gracious Father, so transform us by the gift of your spirit that we would have living hearts that want to love you and love others, that want to do your will, that want others to be saved. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.